You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Milton Lawson, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, I want to welcome everyone in the Sophia audience, meaningoflife.tv, bloggingheads.tv, available uh, video streaming and audio podcast. I'm with Milton Lawson. Uh, Milton, you want to give a little, the 30-second version of uh, who Milton Lawson is so that uh, the audience, if they haven't already seen you with Aria, will uh, know know who, who with whom I speak. Sure, yeah. My name is Milton Lawson. I'm a comic book writer based out of Houston, Texas. And I actually was a member of the Blogging Heads Greater Borgosphere of uh, background uh, video editing folks uh, several years ago. I see. So you were an in, you were you were a behind the scenes man. Yeah, yeah. I helped uh, stitch together the video during some of the uh, lower tech versions uh, that back then the participants couldn't see each other simultaneously, and we had we had some creative uh, creative challenges uh, syncing up the video and everything. Yeah, when I first started, so I've already been now doing this, I think, four years now. When I first started, we had to. Um, my camera was filming me, and 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 we each had to record. Yes, we had to go to use some recording software, and then and then I guess the you you would have to put it all together. Yeah, uh, and I can't tell you how many aborted dialogues I had. Or one where I got halfway through and had to start all over again. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. We had several uh, legendary episodes uh, end up in the in the trash bin that way, unfortunately. Oh, there were some that were lost completely. Oh, lots of them, lots of them. Interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, no, the, 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 you came on my radar. I did not know that. Um, you came on my radar when I watched that really, really excellent dialogue between you and Arya. And um, I was like, oh, I need to talk to that guy because oh, thank uh, you. I think we have a lot of the same interests. And I just discovered now we're almost the same age. Um, despite the fact that Milton looks much younger than me, he's only a few years younger than me. Um, his decrepitude just hasn't quite shown itself in the way mine has. Um, it's, it's, it's there in the mental state. I forget everything now. Under that. Um, so we are here, much to my pleasure, to talk about Stranger Things, the Stranger Things phenomenon. Um, now, this normally would have been Arya's beat, and it's you know this is popular culture. And I asked him first. I first asked Arya if he would do it with me, and Arya very politely and nicely said he doesn't give a shit about Stranger Things. <laughs> much nicer than that. But then he suggested you, and I said, "Are you cool with me talking with him about it?" I know it's normally your beat, the pop culture stuff, and he said, "Absolutely." So that's why I reached out to, to Milton. Um, and Milton, we both have a common interest, I think, in certain cultural dimensions of it. But I thought that we should maybe do a little bit of, you know, um, art criticism also. Um, um, that is, talk about the show stylistically, you know, why, why has it been such a huge success? What are the sort of the elements that are making it work? Um, just what your overall views of it, uh, opinions of it are. Um, it seems there's going to be a fourth season. I'm, I have to say it, it, I'm struck with terror at the thought. I'm really, really worried that this thing that I think is almost nearly perfect is going to get, going to get ruined. So why don't you give me your opening, your opening thoughts on the show and, and what, what are the elements of it that you think are really working that are making it so 
big right now? Well, I, I think there are a number of elements that have contributed to the show's success. Um, and a number of them have been commented about at length in the blogosphere, things like the accuracy of period detail and the evocation of the era. Um, I would pinpoint, as, as someone who's fascinated by the process of creating works of film, television, books, I, I'm always attracted to other dimensions. And there, there are two that really struck me, uh, especially with the first season. And that would be, first of all, the genius idea to not market the show and allow the algorithm to allow people to discover it on their own. And there was this initial sense of ownership that the first wave of audience members got. They were like, we've never heard of this thing. It's popping up on my recommendation feed. Let me try it out. The little one sentence paragraph seems cool. And they knew they had the goods. They knew they had talented filmmakers and storytellers. And I think it gave uh, a distinctiveness to the experience that's kind of really challenging to do in in today's uh, marketplace. There is such a massive competition for eyeballs across all these streaming platforms. And um, I think that was, in hindsight, a, a genius move of theirs. Let me just stop you on that because this is had never occurred to me, and maybe you probably know more, a lot more about this. Maybe you could say a few more things about it. Is it the case that – is it a known thing that um, – that there is a certain appeal to, dis- to, to to audiences discovering on their own as opposed to responding to marketing, or was this just a total guess that paid off? I I suspect it's a guess that paid off because because I've never uh, heard that before. They they did have it just so happened. Uh, I was at San Diego Comic Con the year that they were marketing it, and it was just about a month out from release. And typically what the studios do at San Diego is loud, big. It's, uh, sure. it's throwing parties. It's giving out merch. It's putting attractive people in the street, uh, with t-shirts. Um, and, uh, they went with the most under the radar technique you could imagine. They just put up flyers that looked like the flyers literally from the show from the first season when, you know, Byers is missing, missing kid. Where is he? And and that created a a sort of curiosity that matches the experience of of an audience member. You know, what, what is this thing? So I think that fed into the, the type of story it was. And what was the second thing that you thought was, uh, is a, reason for its success. You said there were two. Yeah. The second thing I, I think um, I don't know enough about the process to know this with personal experience, but it has been told in DVD extra after DVD extra that casting young roles is an extraordinary challenge. And the casting director of stranger things, I have not committed her name to memory uh, but she just did a phenomenal job at finding not just one or two, but an entire cast. A whole ensemble of, of children, yeah. 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 And, like, all you have to do is flip by the Disney Channel and see the antithesis of the Stranger Things cast. You watch the Disney Channel, and you've got this 
superficiality. You've got these fake kids that are just terrible. Um, no, no fault of their own, but you know, the Disney machine that churns them out, but the kids in Stranger Things, they feel real. They feel three-dimensional. And a, a lot of it's due to the writing, but I think the casting uh, yeah. was pretty extraordinary. Also, the fact that they, they had really only one star, and that's Winona Ryder, and it was someone yeah. whose who's star days were past, right? I mean, yeah. it was, <laughs> you know, I, it's funny that, that, that people don't do this more often because it just seems to me that these movies that use relative nobodies and, and these – seem to succeed a lot. You know what I mean? Um, um, I think there's really something to be said for that. Um, and I'm surprised it's not done more often. I'm, I'm surprised that there's still this cachet of these giant named, um, um, giant named people, given that we can now point to so many examples where completely anonymous, no name casts just, you know, were at the heart of huge blockbusters. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, do you think this just the fact that it's that the that the core cast are kids is also part of its appeal? It certainly is for me, um, um, uh, in the sense that for the you know it, it had a similar feel to sort of Stand by Me or The Goonies or um, you know, and there's something about these all kid ensembles that I think I don't know what it is about it, but it has a very strong uh, it, it resonates very strongly. Um, what do you what do you think about this the whole idea of just sort of shows or movies that are centered around leads who are kids? I, I think that there's a lot of appeal in that, and I've uh, I've found that to be a really rare thing to be done well. And so when it does succeed, that that just amps up the the personal connection so much yeah. more. Yeah. And I think it goes back to the difficulty of uh, casting young kids. I think what I've substituted for it in my own entertainment uh, seeking. Um, there are a number of shows that try to walk into similar terrain, but with somewhat older cast members, but they're still young. So you, you get some of that connection. And uh, the what thing you, that pops to mind first, like Riverdale or, or um, did you ever see this show from the UK called skins? Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, that was a fantastic show, and but it was, it was like first year of college, last year of high school type kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I just think there's something appealing about a young cast, especially if they're not famous and they're not obviously groomed and and sort of you know you know a professional not sort of professionalized way. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, uh, uh, you're a comic guy. Um, the, the first Kick-Ass movie, I think, was absolutely incredible, and mm-hmm. the show was absolutely stolen by Chloe Moritz, who I think was, what, yeah. was 12 when she made that? Um, um, and I can think of more things like that. Um, um, and there's maybe some, a certain naturalness to, yeah. um, to, to, to younger actors, especially ones who aren't, um, who aren't overly professionalized. Um, yeah. So uh, other than the, sort of the tight ensemble... Uh, the the fact that they're not famous, um, the, the sort of the great casting, and then the marketing, um, or, or the lack thereof. Um, what is it about the show that you think has captured the uh, captured the zeitgeist so much? Is it just that it's just really good, 
or does is it doing something that you think people are responding to? I also should just warn everybody: there will be spoilers in this. Um, um, so if you have, if you haven't seen the movie, you, if you haven't seen the third season, you want to, um, maybe you should postpone watching this. Is there something about it that's tapping into something going on now? I don't know if there's anything specific. I mean, there's a certain universality of the experience. Um, the very first season is a lot about uh, very serious themes. The The main adult character is recovering from a, uh, a loss of a child. And uh, the only known actress in the show, as you pointed out, when on a writer, her character is living through that potential experience herself. And I already sort of been through a divorce. Yes. It's having trouble making ends meet. Um, so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I noted, I, I just rewatched a, in preparation for this, I, I rewatched an interview with David Harbour that he did on the Kevin Pollack chat show and he he honed in on a couple of very important details about his character that allowed the audience to immediately connect with this guy at, at a real level. And the thing he pointed out was a lot of times in lesser works, when you've got a character who's suffered a loss and we, you know, we cut to five years later and we're dealing with them, there is a moroseness there is a lack of continuation with them. And there's so much complexity with Harbor uh, and the way he plays Hopper. There is this immediate kind of sardonic life and sense of humor to him. The first time you see him walk in to the, uh, to the sheriff's station, you know, he's talking about, you know, mornings are for coffee and contemplation. He grabs his donut. He's got this banter with everyone. Yeah. And so he, He's this character that you can connect to immediately, and you've uh, you've got this uh, sense of uh, you really want to see this guy heal, and you're gonna you're gonna go on a journey with this guy through anything, and yeah. and I, I think that that's a universal thing. I don't think that that's necessarily uh, attuned to this moment in time. Um, yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I do, I do think that there are elements of it that. Are are universal in, the, in that sense, and 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 because it's it's executed so well, and the actors are so good, uh, unusually good for television, it seems to me. Um, 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 it, it, it's funny. On what it's not, it's not at the production value sort of level of sort of the the the, the, the premium TV that we think of now in terms of like HBO and things like that. Mm-hmm. But but in terms of you know. The, the blurring of the line between television and cinema. I mean, this strikes me as still being clearly television, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it, it is executed with a level of sort of professional, um, um, professional polish that I think is, is quite impressive. Um, and, uh, and sort of just, you know, it sort of gets out of the way of its great actors um, um, and great. Mm-hmm. What do you know about these two, about these two guys who made it? I mean, I, I've Absolutely never, nothing. I've never heard of these people before this. I, I have not seen an interview with them. Um, they did do a, they participated. There is a, a little extra thing on Netflix itself that you can see. And uh, it's like a little round table. Um, it's, it's short little vignettes of just discussions with them and some of the cast members about season two. 
Um, and that's a really clever way they are, uh, they're visible there. So they're not, you know, Stanley Kubrick hiding away, but they're still kind of guarded because they're surrounded by the children in the cast. And so there's a sort of, uh, protected layer to it. So I don't think, I don't think you get a real sense of who these guys are, what makes them tick yet. I'm, I'm fascinated by by them and hope to learn more. I guess what I'm wondering is whether this is going to be their thing or whether we're now seeing two guys who are going to now be dominant in television now for, for you know, a, another for a decade or, or, or two, you know? Um, mm-hmm. You know, are these, you know, young, new Norman Lears or whatever you want to call, whoever the, per, you know, or, yeah, yeah. or is this just, you know, their one moment of genius and that's going to be it? Um, right. I, I guess there's no way to tell. Um, um, what do you? So there's been three seasons. Yes. Give me your sense of how you feel the arc of the seasons have gone. I mean, in terms of your feelings about the individual seasons, how well they all work together. Um, and then I do want to talk a little bit before we move on to the main cultural issues about the the question of the fourth episode and whether this for the fourth season and whether this is wise. Um, um, how do you how do you feel about the three seasons? I I cannot talk about that without at least joining you in agreement in part on hesitations on continuing beyond season three in general. Um, I do think there has to be a season four uh, for reasons. The way they ended it, they have to do yes. it now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, but I typically am the person who when when the concluding moments of something that I feel is approaching perfection, when those crescendo notes are starting to sound, I'm always in the back of my mind like, all right, let's leave it. This is perfect. Don't tempt fate. Do not, uh, do not go beyond here. Um, and like one recent example of that that I was happily proven wrong on was the show uh, Fleabag. I don't know if you've had a chance to see that. No, 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 I don't know uh, the first season was a thing of total perfection and it seemed to say everything that needed to be said uh, about that character and that situation. And my premise there was just totally destroyed. Season two is totally masterful, but going back to stranger things at the end of season one, I felt, okay, this is lightning in a bottle. This is a one time miracle. Don't tempt fate. And then they had that very last little scene where Will Byers goes into the restroom and coughs up the little, yeah. you know, the monster that we're going to see. I in got season seriously two. upset when I thought that. I was like, "Oh, thank God they got him!" And then I was like, "No, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, I was satisfied on a storytelling sense because I'm always like analyzing these things from storytelling sense. I thought there needed to be a cost. The tone of the first season was so dark and strong that. Um, just having everything wrap up uh, totally nicely for the characters, I, I felt there needed to be some sort of cost. And so the fact that Will still had this struggle at the end of season one, I felt more than just setting up season two, I thought had there never been a season two, I thought that was still an appropriate note to end on. Oh, I agree. When I say it, I mean, I mean, I'm so invested in the character that I was like upset when I found <laughs> out that he wasn't okay. I don't mean that I thought it was a bad choice. It was brilliant. I'm just saying... I was so invested by that point yeah, that I was like praying that they were okay. And then it turns out that they weren't, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. So then, and how about six, season two? Season two, I I seen it uh, twice across a pretty big distance of time, and I did feel a little bit of disappointment the first time that I saw it. Um, I felt um, that it it had some feelings of a little bit of lack of direction and focus and a little bit of meandering uh, just, just a few times uh, in the, maybe in the first half of the season. And it felt like it lost some of the velocity of the storytelling in the first season. But by the second half of it, I felt that it was, you know, the train was back on the tracks and thoroughly enjoyed the conclusion to it. <coughs> and I actually liked the much derided, uh, Sideways episode uh, where Eleven, Eleven goes off on her own and meets up with um, another child, now teenager, who had been subjected to these experiments and was had these sorts of powers. Uh, yeah, I I don't know why did people hate it so much. I didn't a I didn't see anything wrong with it as a standalone episode, and b it struck me as making sense within the context of it because you know one of the things that the show really does very effectively is, is, is sort of ch- chart the course of maturation, right? From childhood into adolescence. And mm-hmm. kid, that's, kids are going to, kids we do rebel like that, right? I mean, they do. I, I thought it was actually a very good way of, of, of serving multiple purposes. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, did, you, did you understand why people hated that episode so much? I think mainly it had to do with breaking of format that, you know, here, here's a show that has, the whole world has been Hawkins. And yeah. once you leave Hawkins, you kind of pierce the membrane of what they think that universe is. And I think a lot of audiences just don't like that. Whereas I'm the, I'm the guy that's always in the corner, like raising my hands, like, yes, I love it when somebody makes a bold, bold choice like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and as a comic book fan, you know there's a little bit of an X Men vibe happening there, like a like a mutant off finding other mutants. So I, I personally, you know, resonated with that episode quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, and then and then the third season. How well, what do you think of the third season? I think the third season is a return to form. I think it was fantastic. I um, I went in with a bit of a weird expectation because some of the early reviews were emphasizing um, some shifts in, like, comedic tone, and I was expecting a much bigger shift in tone than there actually was. Um, so my expectations were kind of weird going into it, uh, but I thought um, they they got all of the characters uh, on a distinct path with an objective, a goal, uh, a confrontation, a conflict, um, and, and they were on that path, you know, it felt like you were in the back half of the season already by the end of like episode two. Um, so it just felt like super fast paced and like you went through it faster than you told me you were going to. You were like, yeah, surprised. I, did. I did. And, um, partly that was because it turned out that my, my wife and daughter weren't here as, that much. And so I, I, I wasn't, my attention wasn't pulled in other directions. But also just because, honestly, I just um, I stayed up too late because it was so good. Uh, yeah. You know, I read a, a few pe- people who have crit- who had criticisms about it complained that it sort of started off slow. Um, but actually, if you ask me, 
I preferred I prefer the more intimate character driven moments than I do the flat out action. I mean, you know, I, I actually liked those earlier episodes better than I liked the very end of it when it turned kind of into like an action monster movie. Right. Um, um, mm-hmm. um, um, that's not to say that I did not like the last part of it. Just that to me, the most special thing about the show is the ensemble and their relationships and I, I actually wouldn't even care what the subject of the show was if it had those people in it. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's sort of how strong uh, I think I think I think it is. Um, um, I, I share your view. I, I feel like if I had to pick a weak season, I would say it's the second one. I would also say though that that's very common. Um, you know, the two towers is the weak one between Fellowship of the Ring and Return of the King. I think the middle parts are very hard to do. Um, and I think that, um, they did it as well as it can be done. Um, 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 did you just on this, uh, staying on the aesthetic part of this for a minute? I mean, I guess one thing that, that maybe I have a little bit of a complaint about, and it's really not much of a complaint. Um, and I'm wondering whether you think this is going to get resolved when they finally finish this. I'm starting to wonder whether this whole thing about the upside down is actually a coherent idea or whether, it's kind of been, it's kind of like been shifting. It's been a little bit like a moving idea. I, first, <laughs> yeah. I thought I knew, I understood what it was supposed to be, but then in the second season, it was something you could get through by like digging a hole in the ground. I mean, you didn't need an actual tear in, in, you didn't actually need like the, the rip in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. <clears throat> and then I'm not even sure what, it's supposed to be in the third one to what extent it is even in the third one. I mean, yes, they're opening the tear. <clears throat> the Russians are, but the things aren't coming through the tear. Right. And so I, I do, do you, do you, do you think it's this, this is one of these things that's just, we're never going to get a satisfactory version of it. Do you think this is something that they have a clear idea of what it is? And we're going to find out by the end of it. Yeah. I think they have a clearer idea of what it is than what has been, explained thus far and i do think they they kind of go through it a bit quickly but i do think that the physics of how this new tear and how this sort of metamorphized monster came into being sort of makes sense to me in the sense that at the end of season two you've got this tear closed you've got this gate closed however the particles that were the smoke monster that were inside of Will went flying into the sky and presumably stayed on this side of the barrier between our world and the upside down. Right. So once there's any sort of tear, whether it's here or whether it's down in Russia um, or whether the tear that originates in Russia somehow is connected to Hawkins um, it, it, I guess it awakens those particles in some weird sense. Okay. So there's there's a little bit of coherence to the idea, but quite frankly, I'm 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 not very invested in if, if there's not a totally logical explanation for all that at the end. I'm I'm not going to deduct too many points from their semester grade. You know, neither, neither will I, and I don't think, as I just said a minute ago, I don't think the main power of the show is its science fiction or its its horror elements. Um, but I, but is in fact the ensemble um, and their relationships. Um, 
I'm just curious as you know, as a guy who is in the world of comics, and I'm assuming science fiction maybe also that maybe maybe you you understood it better than I did. Um, <laughs> um, um, because I was, I first thought it was very much this idea of sort of like almost like the negative plane, like the opposite, the opposite side. But then more and more, it's 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 starting to feel a little bit like it's it's alien rather than rather than a, like a negative of us, which is what I originally thought it was. Um, but um, I hope I hope look I hope they resolve they do something interesting with it because I actually thought the fir- I thought I found the first season's treatment of that aspect of the of the lore the mm-hmm. most satisfying, um, and the idea that. I, you know, as the show went on, I'm now less clear about where Elle is when she goes on those trips and can see people. Mm-hmm. See, I thought that she was navigating the upside down, but the thing is, it doesn't look like the upside down. It looks like it's a, an empty space with water on the ground, right? Right. So I, I, I'm I'm a little less clear now about what that's all about, too. But I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, um, I. I think the negative idea that you proposed, I think that is going to be part of the ultimate resolution. Not in, not in the sense that that upside down is a, like some sort of a pure reflection of everything in this other dimension. But I do think that characters that pierce through that membrane and have some sort of experience with the other side I think uh, they are forever. Um, they are forever like bifurcated or something into some sort of. There's a negative version of themselves or their spirit or yeah. their essence, whatever that gets manifested in this other dimension in some way. Because the the first season was very clear on hinting at connections between eleven. And the monster that was killed at the end of season one. Um, yeah, the Demogorgon. Yeah. So I think Eleven and Hopper and Will, characters that have uh, gone over in some way, shape, or form, have some sort of a negative avatar or something. That's interesting. That'll be interesting if they do. And I saw an interesting fan theory that. Because I just mentioned the Demogorgon, just the Mind Flayer. For those not in the know, these are all monsters out of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And I saw an interesting fan theory that's suggesting that the entire show is a game of Dungeons and Dragons that these kids are playing. <laughs> okay, um, um, which I thought was really actually kind of interesting. Um, um, not just because Dungeons and Dragons plays such a crucial role in the in the in the show, and that it's it's the, it's the original thing around which the, the first the group of friends clusters um but um also having to do with the period which 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 i guess we're going to talk about now um um Mm -hmm. what we wanted to spend the bulk of our time on um one of the things i'd so so i send you an out i always send the people i'm going to talk to at least some sort of an outline so that it's not they have some sense of what i'm going to talk want to talk about and one of the things i asked you was um and actually let me uh let me read it exactly. Um, 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 does Stranger Things represent a turn towards Gen X period pieces, and will it lead a broader cultural shift in that direction? And 
not only was that the thing I was the most interested in, it turns out it's the thing you're the most interested in. You said you'd already be- had thoughts along those lines. So yeah. Why don't we start off with you telling me what you've been thinking about along those lines, <laughs> and then I can sort of chime in. Well, I, I've had this feeling that um, our generation is experiencing some sort of catering to or um, a, a reflection in the culture uh, which is uh, somewhat markedly different from the discussion you had a while back with Aryeh about Generation X reflection in the political landscape. Um, with Stranger Things and the, prolif- the, the return of the Star Wars franchise, with the proliferation of all these Marvel movies, and uh, specifically last year, one work that really communicated this a lot, both in the movie version and the novel version, was uh, Ready Player One. Did you did you I, get I, did, I, did, I, did, I was warned to not watch the movie by people who were fans of the book that that the movie was a disaster, and I don't know if that's true or not. I have read the book, um, but I have not seen the film. The film, I think, is a very distinct thing. And the film makes one huge departure from the book in the sense that the book was all about a guy who was obsessed with 80s culture. And in the movie version, they ditch the fact that it's 80s and they just make it someone that's obsessed with pop culture in general. Uh, so, they're, so they're able to sort of just shoehorn all kinds of other references and it becomes this, you know, pop culture, you know, panoply. But... And, and I think it loses a lot in, in that translation and it becomes its own thing. But in the book, I felt that some of those themes about uh, nostalgia, um, I think are, are relevant to what we're going through now. And I'm, I'm asking myself that question all the time that I love these things. And my defense of my experience with these things is I legitimately want to see more uh, Star Wars stories. I feel that there's territory to be tread there. I legitimately want to see more Marvel stories, even though it's been exhausted uh, seemingly. I, I still think that there's a little bit of meat on the bone there. Um, and growing up, uh, raised by boomers, whenever boomers uh, were attracted to something nostalgic, I got this whiff that really was repellent to me that, like, it wasn't about the interest in the thing. It was about some sort of statement about a want to return to a better time. And they wanted to return to that time. And maybe I'm guilty of that too. And just totally blind to it. But I, I just feel that that's, that's not my experience with this, uh, this turn in the culture towards generation X period pieces. Yeah. You know, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you was whether you think this is, and you know, this is something that I, I, I'd have to look at, look at the audience demographics more. Maybe you know this, I don't. But whether the primary audience for this is Gen Xers or whether it's sort of split between Gen Xers for whom much of the appeal is nostalgia and then it also has a young audience for whom much of the appeal is the ensemble or the actors, Right. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know how you feel about, I mean, as, aside from the empirical question, I mean, it seems to me 
it's one of those rare things which could do both equally well, right? And, and, and thus mm-hmm. appeal very strongly to two generations that are actually a generation removed, right? I mean, so yes. Gen X and Gen Z, or iGen, whatever you want to call them. Um, um, what do you think about that in terms of its appeal, its capacity to appeal in multiple ways? I, I think that's definitely true. And um, I believe, I mean, anecdotally, weirdly enough, all the people that I know personally that love the show are either Gen X or Gen Z. I, most of my millennial friends are uh, either unknown or not really strongly uh, pro or con. Um, That's but, interesting. I've, I've, I've noticed the same. My daughter's friends love it. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there talking about it with them. Yeah. And they're uh, asking me how realistic it was. <laughs> sure, yes. It's a sort of a wonderful intergenerational conversation, but you're right. I can't think of any millennials that I know that are very interested in it. Um, and I have some maybe little theories about that, but, um, but yeah. Well, no. I, I, I do think that there's at least some empirical support for what uh, we're saying here because, um, you know, the, the undoubted breakout star of the whole thing is Millie Bobby Brown, and she's vaulted into this, uh, social media stardom to where I, I don't know the channels and the which uh, which social media platforms it is, but apparently she is the leading influencer among Gen Z girls, and uh, anything she says becomes huge news. Huh. Um, Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm heartened, but I have to say I'm, I'm a, a major fan after this. Um, um, she was, and the first season was particularly remarkable because she barely had any lines, right? <laughs> and somehow managed to do so much emoting just through her facial expressions and yeah. her gestures and stuff that it was, I, I thought it was a, a pretty masterful acting job for somebody that young. Um, I think, look, I'm thinking back, you know, I'm trying to think of when I think the, the sort of, Gen X started to sort of the Gen X re- revival started um, in terms of uh, 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 popular culture, and my mind is going back to Hot Tub Time Machine, right? So, so Hot Tub Time Machine, I think it was around 2010, maybe, um, and um, I remember going to see it with my wife, and um, I was absolutely in love. I think I, I think I immediately went and bought it, and then like I think I've watched it a, a half dozen times. Now that strikes me as as pure as pure nostalgia service, right? I mean that that's basically John John Cusack writing you know, writing a love love letter to all those great eighties movies, and all the elements of them are all wrapped into that into that one package, right? Um, um, you know, you can pick out all the different eighties movies from different things that elements that are in the, including movies that John Cusack was in. Um, um, and I wondered then whether, okay, the baby boomer sensibility has completely dominated popular culture now for decades. Is this finally going to be the beginning of when the, 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 the gen, the gen X sensibility now starts to become, uh, you know, where people go to when they're looking for to do period pieces um, uh, to influence sort of, you know, the, the sort of the dominant conception sort of of humor um, and all that sort of thing. Um, and at the time, I hoped it would, but it didn't really, right? Um, and now I'm wondering whether this is going to do it. Um, 
and I don't know whether how you, how you feel about that. Whether you, whether you think we're now going to see more Gen X period pieces being done, um, uh, because in the sense that the the, the, the torch has been passed, the baby boomers are now old. Yes, yes. Their culture now, their ethos is really old, and just can't keep resonating. Right, no, no matter the fact that they want to stay alive forever. They can't keep resonating, especially not with young people. Is that your sense? I I, I hope so. Um, I, I I am second to no one in in loathing of the boomer generation. Uh, so I hope this is a prophecy to come true. Um, I I fear that they're going to invent uh, some sort of transhumanist uh, way to stick around and dominate everything. Um, but there's one complexity to all of these uh, observations that just totally scrambles my brain every time we talk about this. And when you were talking about it with REA, uh, some of it came up. But, for example, let's, let's stipulate the fact that we, we agree that this is an amazing Gen X uh, period being depicted authentically. But these Duffer brothers are millennials. Yeah. And uh, do they just have this obsessive knowledge of the period uh, that translates so well, but they are artists formed by experiences of millennials. Yeah. Uh, is this a, is this a millennial expression? Uh, 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 That's, very millennial aesthetic? That's really interesting. And I would, I, I want to talk about that. I will point out that the greatest creator of eighties archetypes um was himself a baby boomer, and that's, of course, John Hughes, right? So right. Yeah. you don't have to be of the generation to, in a sense, uh, speak the lang- in the voice of the generation, it seems to me. Um, yeah. Although most people won't do that. I mean, most people won't be, in a sense, out of their time, in a sense. Um, yeah. there, there are people who will be. Um, um, but the, it's an interesting thing you say about this. Is this really an exp- a millennial expression? Um, because there was one thing in season three, I'm going to get, people are going to hate on me for this, but there was one thing in season three that I thought, oh, that's, uh, that would not have been done in the 80s. Oh, which which thing was this? Robin being a lesbian character. Mm-hmm. Just would not have been done. The potential love interest with Steve, the fact that it looked like they were going to, it just, it rang wrong. Not because there's anything wrong with people being lesbians, for God's sake. But to the extent to which this is supposed to be taking place in 1985 and is channeling all these movies by John Carpenter and, and other people, I just I just thought to myself, okay, that's out of period. That broke immersion for me. Um, um, it, it, it's a tiny thing. Yes. They make nothing of it, and, and so, uh, who knows what will happen in season four. They make nothing of it, but it struck me at the time. I thought, God, is that just to just get enough woke points in that they won't get attacked too much for all the other stuff that's in it, <laughs> right? You know, and, and that actually did make me worry a little bit because I've read some things. So apparently this, this sort of thing just makes me, makes me want to shove my head through drywall. Um, I read that Netflix is very concerned about how much, how many depictions of smoking there are in its shows. Yes, I've, I've that, heard that, this as well. And that, and that Stranger Things is one of the main culprits. 
And so are they going to be, is there, are they all going to be in smoking cessation programs in, in season four? Um, I've also read a number of reviews in places like IndieWire and stuff that are just saying like, I don't need to watch a show about some, you know, a bunch of sex you know, talking about Hopper being a sexist. And I guess what I'm, I'm part of what I'm asking you is in light of what you just said, are, is this really a millennial show? But even if it isn't, is it going to get destroyed by millennial val by the sort of the heavy hand of millennial moralizing, right? In, in other words, is it going to get crushed under the weight of a thousand people yelling about diversity and about, you know, where's the trans character and, you know, why are so many people smoking and, you know, is it going to get crushed on <coughs> another way of asking, is it even possible to have a Gen X revival given the miserable nightmare of a culture we live in right now? Right. Um, right. Um, so just your thoughts on any and all of that. I know that was kind of in, inchoate, but I think, um, we're all always going to be pushing against a certain tide in that respect. And there's, there's actually in a, a totally, uh, unseen film that, that, that I thought spoke well to these issues. Did you ever see the John Cusack film adult world? No, uh, I, I don't even uh, know that one. That's, I think, I think you should see this because you, you mentioned you like Brett Easton Ellis. He's essentially playing a Brett Easton Ellis character on a book tour many, many years after his most successful novel. And he gets in uh, a, a scenario where he encounters a millennial character and he uh, is decidedly uh, sticking to the Gen X ethos and in a dynamic uh, criticism with, uh, with the millennial character, I believe played by Emma Roberts, uh, who's an aspiring writer, um, and he gives this like merciless uh, portrayal. There's not a lot to be said for the film in general, but as far as like this general generational critique, I think it, it really speaks to those themes, and you should watch it. But as far as the uh, Stranger Things implications goes, I is it going to get woke in season four and be ruined? I don't think that there are enough agenda quote-unquote items to tip it too far out of what uh what it's what it's heart and what its ethos is really about because for example the item you bring up the uh the character surprisingly turning uh, out to be a lesbian when the the structure of the entire arc seems to be leading you to believe that you know this character has been through a uh, a lot in the first three seasons. And we, we really want to redeem the, the negative aspects of that character in the first season. Uh, he's paid his dues. He, he wants a love interest. Yeah. He's finding after a love interest and we're going to pay it off here. And I thought they brilliantly subverted the expectations there. And oh, so uh, you liked that move. I liked that move purely on, on the, emotional impact because I, I still feel like Steve's redemption is, is like an end state of the show type of thing. Ah, interesting. As long as there's going to be, uh, as long as there's going to be more seasons and hopefully only one more season, uh, that, that sort of happy coupling, I, I feel more appropriate emotionally to be, be happening at the end. And 
previewing season four also, um, if Hopper returns, um, cigarettes are not going to be a convenient commodity for him uh, where he might most logically end up. So it's it's a place where the quote-unquote agenda could actually fit in with the story without seeming to be overbearing. Well, the Winona Ryder character chain smokes also. Okay, okay, there you go, there you go. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I'm saying this partly because, you know, you talked about MCU before, you talked about MCU is starting to get ruined by being by bringing wokeness in. And um, um, Star Wars is also, right? In, in other words, I... I, I Look, the boomers were all idealistic and they were hippies and they were going to save the world and it was all utopian and all this sort of wonderful and make love, not war. Very sort of naive, very big, grandiose sort of... Then Gen X sort of comes along and it sort of, you know, reminds everyone what reality is like and um, and calls bullshit on a lot of this stuff. Um, and um, then the millennials come along and, of course... I understand that you are the child of boomers, but I, I'm the child of, 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 of the silent generation. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, that the millennials were mostly raised with the ethos of the boomers. Um, that's, in a sense, why we got skipped over, was A, the boomers hated us because we, we, we sort of mocked them and, and made them out to be the fools that they are. And B, because... Um, um, uh, uh, they could, they could, they could just sort of skip us, right? Because the millennial cohort's so large, right? And so, and so the idea was this: okay, we'll just pretend that whole Gen X thing didn't happen. We'll make, we'll, we'll, we'll turn mocking the '80s into like a theme, a meme. Um, we'll pretend like nothing good got made in the '80s, even though the, by far the best pop music that's ever been made was made in the '80s. Um, um, uh, I think that's that's pretty hard to deny, and. Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll just go on, we'll just, we'll get a second time around for our, our ethos to dominate the culture through the millennials, right? Um, and I guess my hope was that, that Gen Z would then be more like us, right? Um, mm-hmm. that it would sort of cycle around. I viewed us, I viewed the Gen X ethos as a kind of a corrective to an overreaching, over-moralizing, over-utopian kind of uh, picture of the world. The problem is, though, that if every time we have a revival, they're going to insist on imposing their values on it, then it's not much of a corrective, right? <laughs> so if now Star Wars is going to be woke with purple-haired feminists running spaceships, right? And if and if and if MCU is not going to be woke with Captain Marvel, as if there's never been a, a, a strong woman character in a, in, a, in a superhero movie before, right? Even while she's standing right next to Black Widow, right? Um, um, and if now Stranger Things is going to get woke, I just I guess I'm, what I'm what, what I'm asking you is you know, is it even possible for us to function as a kind of a cultural corrective through these sorts of revivals, if the revivals are going to be subjected to the contemporary mores, right, the contemporary values? Yeah, well, I think there are a number of uh, areas I'd want to. Uh, respond first in, in, in yeah, the sense that I don't particularly view Stranger Things in and of itself as conveying this this ethos uh, as clearly as 
something like the adult world example I, I, I mentioned. Um, whereas uh, Stranger Things each season puts its characters through the ringer, uh, but ultimately is Spielbergian in that it's it's going to give you that heartwarming um, scene of a happy ending. Now, there's there are complexities each time, and I I believe that that's one of the hallmarks of why uh, these filmmakers are are so good at uh, conveying the entertainment in this franchise. But um, I don't I don't view Stranger Things as like striding into the culture in a black leather jacket and calling bullshit on uh, over uh, overzealous uh, you know idealistic values. But does I, I, but before you go on, just on that point, don't you think it kind of does in the following sense? Um, I mean, Hopper does. It I portrays mean, a very, it portrays lovingly <laughs> and dwells upon all the details of that time. Right. right? Mm-hmm. In other words, it doesn't just not only doesn't criticize it, it celebrates it. It celebrates kids riding bikes without helmets it right, celebrates right. people drinking. It celebrates um, real bullying, um, as opposed to whatever people are pretending bullying is now. Right? Um, yeah. As someone who was, you know, routinely followed home from school and had the shit beaten out of me in my own driveway, um, I, I know the difference between real bullying and Erzatz bullying. Um, mm-hmm. um, in other words, it by painting the period so re- accurately. Mm-hmm. Dwelling upon its all de- all these its details in such a loving way, you mm-hmm. know, Billy the lifeguard he's going to shack up with someone's mother, right? I mean, all this sort of stuff today. Every single one of these things is something to sort of you know get your knickers in a twist about and to go have a hashtag campaign against, and so that's the sense in which it struck me as mm-hmm. serving that function, despite not being explicitly. Now, do, yeah. do, you not, do you not think so? I, I can, I can, I can definitely see that. I, I, I feel that it does celebrate the the period lovingly, and that is one of the appeals for me. Like you, you said, your uh, Gen Z uh, daughter has asked you if it's accurate, and yeah. and very happy report a number of times throughout all of the seasons. The moments that resonated, like okay, yeah, we we definitely acted that way. Um, so I, I felt it did that way. On the other ones, though, I I have some sympathies with the sense of a need for correctives when it comes to Marvel and Star Wars in the sense that overall the track record of the properties and universes there uh, needed uh, some corrective. I mean, there were a number of amazing Marvel characters, but there was also a history of a lot of exploitive imagery, a lot of cheesecake, uh, sexualized imagery with the female characters, uh, not a lot of opportunities for female writers, not a lot of opportunities for female artists, um, uh, a history of um, – a somewhat intimidating culture at uh, fan conventions. Uh, the the whole cosplay is not consent uh, movement uh, as a corrective to that. And Star Wars, of course, had only one, you know, 
extremely iconic and amazing, uh, powerful, complicated female character. But in the first two films, she's really the only female character that exists in those. So I, I did feel some sympathy. I, I, I understand your concerns that, um, like, especially with the last Jedi, it, it wore that corrective on its sleeve. It announced what it was about. It clearly conveyed its perspective. Um, and um, whether or not it destroys it. Yeah, go ahead. I'd like to actually let's have a whole another conversation with you about this. <laughs> I just don't understand what's so terrible about a section of entertainment being something that's mostly liked and enjoyed by boys. I just don't see what's wrong with that. There's whole sectors of entertainment that are mostly liked by girls, and nobody is, you know, breaking their, twisting themselves into pretzels trying to figure out how to get more boys into it, right? I mean, I just don't understand why that strikes me as exactly the kind of sensibility that I thought my gen- our generation kind of called bullshit on, and that is, why does it, why does everything have to be like that? I mean, you know, I mean, what, what's so terrible about the fact that the that the that that the you know Dungeons and Dragons you know the the woman warrior is wearing like some you know metal brassiere. Um First of all, it's not real. <laughs> and second of all, second of all, the game is played ninety five percent by boys, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and I don't I don't know that that's going to change no matter how many how many times you try to. It just seems to me like we're trying to force everybody to sort of like entertainment the same way across the board out of some some very odd notion of equality. And um, I'm, I'm obviously not speaking in favor of, you know, sexually harassing people at conventions, but I just don't really quite understand this sort of, Oh my God, you know, if there aren't more girls, you know, in Marvel comics, that's a terrible thing. I, I guess I just don't see why it is, but we could probably have a whole other, yeah. whole other conversation about that. I, I believe the changes there, just briefly, the changes there were, 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 were organic and, changed and faced uh, a number of challenges. And I think the comics culture and community has not always uh, dealt with them uh, perfectly on, uh, on the various transition points. But I think the broad drift of comparing like contemporary comics in terms of the types of perspectives that are available and the types of stories that come across. I do believe that uh, the, the new era is more enriched and uh, superior. And That's um, right. so um, you don't accept the, I, the get woke, I, go broke line. Yeah. I, but I don't think that that negates the experiences uh, before these evolutions. I think the, those those works stand the test of time and um, should not be harshly judged by today's standards. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, fair enough. And we, and we, we, we should have to think about it more. We should talk about this another time, but I think Sudan's a really interesting and not very much discussed topic other than people getting really pissed off and screaming at each other on the internet. Um, in terms of stranger things though, um, it seems to me that, the real risk of the fourth seat of another, the risk of going on. <laughs> um, part of one of the problems that seems to me is just simply, I just think that, that if once the, once the, once the ensemble is too much older, I don't think it's going to have the appeal. And I think it's appeal is going to substantially decline. I don't know that I want to see these people 
as adult characters. Um, in other words, you could take this through until they're out of high school into college. You know, I'm thinking of, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? I mean, yeah, I'm like probably the only person on the planet who thought the first season was the best one and that it was all downhill after that. But if you actually know why Joss Whedon made the show, it was to, as a, as a, as a re- response, a reaction against Beverly Hills 90210. And, and, it was about the depiction of high school and adolescence, right? Um, as like being a, a factory full of monsters, right? And um, once it was no longer in high school, it just became a monster show. It's, mm-hmm. That whole dimension of it vanished. And I think there is something really special in this show about that's about... It's showing us what childhood used to be like, in a sense, Mm-hmm. and how it's likely never to be again. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a disaster, right? It is an absolute disaster that childhood is the way it is now, as opposed to the way it was so much better to be a child then than it is to be a child now, even with all the modern conveniences, um, and in many cases because of them. And I just don't know how the show works with these guys, with these kids being 20 years old. I mean... yeah. I- I don't think it does, and I I would assume that the creators would would want to move on to new things as well. I am intrigued by this crazy notion, though. Um, there's there is a trope of this type of story with the close knit kids having a a formative supernatural experience uh, in adolescence then rejoining in adulthood. You're talking about Stephen King's It. Stephen King's It. Um, there's a comic series out right now called Die, which I highly recommend, which is sort of Stranger Things-y, but uh, with the Stranger Things kids uh, revisiting that experience as adults uh, many, many, many years later. And it would be intriguing to me to be an old man to come on here uh, 15, 20 years from now and see, uh, like there was that Netflix series that happened, uh, last year that the haunting on house Hill or something along those lines. Yeah. 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 I, I remember it. Yeah. Um, I think that there would be a weird potential for this series to come back, you know, a generation or two later, uh, even with the original cast members. But I, I don't, I don't see a lot of, road left to go with this particular group. I think the fourth season feels like it should be the last to me. I, I, I didn't, I thought, did we always, did we always know before we saw the ending of the third season, did we know there was going to be a fourth season already? I think technically we still don't even know that. I don't think that they've announced it. I, I think it's, I mean, it's clearly going to happen uh, based on the after credits sequence, um, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't have even been there had they not planned that. See, I, I, I went into this. I tried to read and look, see a little, a little media as possible about a thing like this before I watch it. Yeah, me too. And, um, um, so I thought that this was it. Oh, okay. And I was actually sort of devastated going into it thinking that this would be it. But I also thought, you know, 
they keep in the in the marketing running this, you know, they're they're not kids anymore meme. Right. And I thought, okay, now that they're full blown teenagers, this is going to be it. I mean, this is going to be the end of it. And um, and so I was actually quite shocked when it ended in a way that made it obvious that a fourth season was coming. And um, I was under the impression, please tell me if this is not correct. I was under the impression that this is simply because the thing is so successful that the, the corporate people at, at Netflix, they're, they're simply going to say, you know, you're making another one, right? Um, 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 just because of the money. Um, is that not the case? I mean, was this a, was this a planned more than three season thing from the beginning? Um, I have not heard, I, I, I believe that the Duffer brothers are just so, um, media shy and protective of their concepts. They, they, as far as I know, they haven't spoken very at length, uh, as to far as what the, what the overall plan is. So no one uh, knows this actually. I, I don't think, and this just may be my, my ignorance because I try <laughs> I've tried to stay as spoiler-free on this stuff as possible. Um, but I recently saw a piece that said counterintuitively that Netflix is now shifting towards limiting shows to two seasons because at some point the Bing counters have have put some sort of correlation to where uh, after your second season you don't drive new subscribers anymore. So oddly well, enough, I've heard whiff of that also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- that would seem to be—I don't know how far they would take something like that. I mean, this is clearly a brand identifying uh, show, and networks like HBO—they want to cling to, and like AMC uh, famously tried to prolong things like Breaking Bad, Mad Men. HBO pro- tried to prolong Game of Thrones. Um, oh God! Talk about a disaster, right? I mean, that was just what a lot. What a lot of effort to end up shit, right? I mean, it just that that has to go down as one of the great failures, don't you think? That that show. I believe, I believe the culture at large has arrived at that determination pretty forcefully. I'm I I feel like I'm alone in dissenter in the corner. Oh, you like the last season. I, I I liked the last season a lot, and I felt. Okay, that, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to prejudge it on you. Yeah. Oh, I, I I concede that I'm very much in the minority on this point. Um, I I felt it ended up where I thought it could have and should have gone, but um, so you didn't I don't think know. They spent all this time building up this terrifying villain, then it turns out that you know they're pushovers. Oh. Uh, yeah, what the hell was I afraid of the White Walkers for all those seasons for? If Arya Stark's just going to go, you know, poke him in the eye, and that's going to be it, right? I mean, and I love Arya; she's my favorite character in the show. I mean, another example, yeah, of a kid actor just totally stealing the show, right? I mean, but you didn't yeah. think that they they just completely went like that? <laughs> well, I always felt that the the conflict at the core of that was the assumption going in was if we can set aside all of our differences and band together, we can defeat this enemy. And that the true conflict of the series was getting all of these warring factions on the same page. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, that, and that once they achieved that, uh, beating the white walkers was sort of a fait accompli. Um, so I kind of, 
felt that that didn't shock me. So just before we go, just what's after Stranger Things? I mean, put on, you know, you, you are in a, a, a serious consumer of, of popular culture and entertainment and, and much more knowledgeable probably than I am. Um, so you, I would I would credit your at least you know guesses a little bit with being somewhat educated. I mean, wh- where is this going to go? I mean, so so we're going to be done with Stranger Things. It'll end eventually, hopefully sooner rather than later. Are we going to see more stuff like this on television? Are we going to start seeing it happening in the movies? Are they just going to simply run out and exhaust these huge franchises like Star Wars and Marvel, and then we'll be then we'll be done with Gen X? Um, we can, we can say we, okay, we gave you your five minutes now, go away and we'll go back to making our woke entertainment. I mean, where do you, where do you, what do you see happening? Let's say in the next five years. Well, I I think Hollywood has usually proven itself to be an (coughs) entity driven by, uh, yesterday's success over the weekend dictates our decisions on Monday morning and they, they often miss the true lessons uh, that the, the breakout successes should represent. For example, stranger things, the lesson that should come across is this was one of those quirks of fate in uh, entertainment creation where you had a newly arriving network, Netflix was still at that point trans- when it was being made, it was still transitioning from a place that just compiles other people's media into a intellectual property creator on its own right. And so it was a wash in all this cash and it threw all these seeds out and specifically with stranger things, uh, the guy that ran the network said, man, this sounds cool. Here's a big truckload. Well, not a big truckload, but as much money as we can give you to do this thing. You go over to Georgia, and we're going to leave you entirely alone. We're not going to give you a single note. We're not going to interfere with the process. And this is the kind of unfiltered, unnoted to death thing that happens when you trust passionate when you trust, talent. When you trust your artists. You, when you trust your artists, you get Same thing with music. That's why the music of the 70s will never be touched, right? Because bands like you know crazy bands could get contracts record label deals and were simply left to make their own albums i mean you know and to do to do their and what do you get you get artistic real art you know um so, you, they're not going to learn that lesson though i doubt it right no so the the primary lesson right now is we need franchises and what's the best way to do franchises either remake things buy things uh listen to other people's obsessions and and one of the biggest deals signed recently uh, was for the Patrick Rothfuss King Killer series. Are you familiar with this uh, group of novels? No. Um, so this is a fantasy series that's supposed to be a trilogy, and it is compared to George R. R. Martin's series in the fact that it also similarly has an author who has not penned the final chapter yet and has a fan base that's very angry at, at, at said author. And he's literally gone into therapy over this. Uh, but um, and if he does end it, he better not end it the wrong way, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, right. You find yourself in the movie misery, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, um, 
I can't remember the studio that bought it, but they're trying an interesting angle. They're trying to develop it both for the small screen and the big screen simultaneously. Um, And one of the big fans of the series is actually uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame. And he's uh, music is a, one of the lead characters in it is a musician. And so music is a key portion of the storytelling. So he's supposedly going to compose some music for it. Um, and so I would say as far as predictions in the next five years, I think that's going to be one of the big franchises that people will be talking about. Yeah. I, 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 I can't say I'm hopeful. I mean, given where the music industry has gone, I don't know if you're a gamer at all. Um, I'm a pretty, relatively avid gamer um, mm-hmm. where the video game industry is going. I want to give you just talking an example of again, a lesson that didn't get learned. Right. And that is that, uh, that, that, that a, a brand new, fresh, well-executed property is always going to be better than, than simply another iteration of a franchise. And that's the mass effect trilogy in, uh, in video games. Um, um, mm-hmm. You know, they, Bioware managed to create a science fiction universe with the size and with the depth and the detail um, to rival Star Trek, Star Wars. I mean, to rival the biggest film franchises. They somehow miraculously managed to do this. Um, Got three games, great games out of it. But now, because of the way that the larger companies are running the smaller, the, the video game design studios, they just want everything to be games as a service. And so mm-hmm. everything has to be online and everything has to be multiplayer and everything has to have loot boxes and all this sort of stuff that, that really um, makes any good storytelling impossible. And um, so I wish that I, I wish I was optimistic. Um, I will say that, I mean, a lot of quality television is being made now by these companies that have nothing to do actually with, you know, with, with creative, you know, so, you know, some of these Amazon shows are quite good. Yeah. Um, Man in the high castle, uh, um, handmaiden's tale. Um, um, and, um, it's not that they won't be able to create quality, but I, I feel like stranger things is something that almost could be generation defining, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that, helped define our generation when we were kids. It was the existence of those things that mm-hmm. really sort of identified, right? Um, identified aesthetically what we were about culturally. And I feel like something like Stranger Things is of that caliber. It could do that. I just don't know, because of the business model, as you described it, I just don't know if that's really going to be likely. And if, you know, another thing that's very disturbing is the, pretty much the, the the death of the indie films, the indie film uh, industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so now it's like either you're just watching these blockbuster franchises, or you're watching some DIY thing on on YouTube, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't know how you get a Quentin Tarantino out of this environment. I don't think you do, right? And so I'm I'm I I I I have to admit I'm pretty worried. Um, are you generally worried or, or do you think this is going to come around and we'll have good popular, we'll have high quality popular culture again and not just high quality, very, very niche DIY kind of stuff. But actually I am quality popular culture. I'm actually optimistic in a number of respects. And I, I do Why? share, I do share your concern about the loss specifically of the adult themed 
two-hour feature film theater-going experience. Um, I believe that that has been under assault with uh, the prevalence of these big-budget action movies, these franchises, these sci-fi spectacles. That has been going for quite a while. And I believe um, that that trend is only going to continue. However, I do think with all of these streaming platforms, their space is opening up for those types of stories to come across as miniseries. The quirky, independent, six-episode, one-hour uh, per episode kind of thing that never would have happened in a network TV landscape. Um, like something like Patriot is an Amazon uh, two-season thing about a, uh, a spy, and it's a very grounded CIA, uncompromising, but with a dark sense of humor thing that would just never exist in any other uh, cultural time period. Um, so when those little things blip up on the radar, I'm, I'm heartened. And like Netflix themselves, I thought they had a banner year last year. Uh, in addition to whatever they did in the television landscape, you know, um, the film Roma was an absolute potential career defining film by one of the greatest filmmakers alive. Um, I, I had to hustle to be able to see it in a screen, uh, because it only played on one screen for like three days. It came nowhere near where I live. <laughs> uh, uh, so that part, the, the loss of the theatrical experience is something that I definitely uh, am worried about. And the other big thing for me, I'm a huge Orson Welles aficionado, and last year Netflix shelled out lots of money to restore his last film. I had to drive from Houston to Austin to be able to see it in the theater. Uh, but, you know... Netflix is doing some good things with with the the cash they've got, at least for now. And do you think you think do you think the crowdfunding that has been so so the the ray of hope in video game gaming is the small independent studios who, because of crowdfunding platforms, are now able to produce games. That, okay that in the past would have been made by AAA studios, right? Um, yeah. So all the great role-playing games now are being played by being made by small indie studios. They're not being made by the AAA studios anymore. Mm-hmm. The days of Bethesda and, and Bioware and all these sort of are behind them, and now it's, you know, it's Larian Studios and all these other things. Do you think something similar could happen over in television and film? That, 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 that people who just, who have sort of really don't want to be bound to this to the system, will st- can use crowdfunding platforms to sort of create, or, or or the media too too different to be able to do that in television and film. I, I hope it's there, um, and this this is where I'm going to get myself in some trouble. I I per- I have a particular dislike of a lot of. The, what gets channeled into feature uh, independent films from the millennial generation, this this so-called mumblecore genre. I'm, I'm not a fan of that stuff. Um, so I'm hoping that Gen Z comes around and with their uh, uh, with their experience of being uh, attached to screens at all time and their their visual literacy of you know consuming so much YouTube and everything nonstop, maybe they are going to 
wow us with some visually interesting material. Um, but you so, don't see any reason why crowdfunding might not be a way to get indie cinema and indie television back, you know, going. Oh, I, I, I've seen some indie uh, successes myself uh, that uh, would not have existed without crowdfunding. So I'm definitely optimistic on those grounds as well. I haven't seen it in the TV space, but it's just something that hasn't made, you know, a blip on my radar yet, I guess. It's, it's been more like the feature film type thing. One last thing before you go, because you're a comic guy, I just want your, I want you to tell me what you think of this. So I, I'm an absolute devotee, like on his knees fan of Watchmen. And what do you hear about this Watchmen show that's coming out? Should I be overjoyed? Should I be despairing and crying in the corner of my room? Do you not know anything about it? I mean, I, I don't know too much other than um, I was, I would have been, I was despairing like beforehand. Um, just, I, I felt that that was a property that should be pretty much left alone. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued with, with two dimensions of the way they're approaching it. First of all, it's not even an adaptation of the graphic novel at all. Um, so they're taking the universe and the characters into a new direction. And, um, although I, I do join the cultural chorus in condemning the final season of Lost, I remain a big fan of Damon Lindelof. And I thought he was operating at a maestro level with his most recent series, The Leftovers. So, uh. Um, you believe in the creator. You think this, this guy can do something like this. I I think if anyone can, it would be someone like him. I'm skeptical. Um, and uh, weirdly enough, though, since it's already been kind of transmuted once by the abominable Zack Snyder, if this is a terrible experience, I feel like the the graphic novel is still there. It's still pure to me. You know, I, I don't feel it's ruined. You Whereas if... You hated Snyder's, even the director's, the full director's cut. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of mixed on it. I didn't hate it. I hate Zack Snyder in general, but that I particular. Was, I gotta tell you, I thought it was very faithful, and actually, I think actually improved the 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 the, 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 the climax. Um, the climax was definitely, I, I believe that but I thought it, it was incredibly faithful in the sense of the the tone, the look, the. And once you the director's cut integrating the the the, 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 the comic that go, that runs through parallel through it, I didn't understand the hate that the movie got. But um, um, maybe I'm too much of a fan. <laughs> I'm the, such the a fan. That, I like anything that has Watchmen on it, right? <laughs> well, the the one that I'm going to be clutching very closely is the one that was just announced by Netflix. They're going to adapt Neil Gaiman's um, Sandman. Yes. Now, how do you, how do you do we know anything about that yet? Uh, the only things we know about it are that uh, Gaiman is going to be a executive producer. Well, that's and good. Hopeful. The showrunner, though, the lead writer, is one of the people who wrote the recent Wonder Woman feature film. And I have no knowledge of this guy. I The fact that Neil Gaiman is giving him a thumbs up earns the uh, benefit of the doubt from me, but I, this is one of those sacred texts for me. And if they mess it up, I'm going to, I'm going to be very, very disappointed and angry. 
what do you think given the given the the way the way shows are made now and everything and given the current contemporary demands what is the thing you most fear them doing with that property in other words in what way does it lend itself to being going horribly wrong where, where, where are you most afraid i'm also a fan uh, of the series yeah. Uh, I think the two things that they've got to get the casting right of, of specifically death. Uh, death has to be cast really well. Uh, Dream needs to be cast really well. Uh, but the overall darkness and uncompromising, like borderline NC 17 uh, seriousness of the content. I feel like uh, if, if, if Netflix is now worried about smoking content, uh, that could be a problem. Yeah, wait until you see a, a, you know an episode about you know a convention full of serial killers. I mean, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, Milton, I want to thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate you coming on and talk to me about this. Um, and uh, maybe I would like to talk to you again on th- this other issue that we broached but didn't really go into um, about comics and about the sort of the. The, the effort to, to expand the audience or, or however you want to call it, maybe we can talk about that some other time. But I greatly appreciate your thoughts and your insights uh, and your expertise. So thank you. Thank you so much. And to everyone, watch Stranger Things if you haven't watched it, for God's sake. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Take care, man. All right. Thank you much. All right. Bye-bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.